of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 386. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have James from FamilyFungi.net. As you might guess from that, we're going to be talking a lot about mushrooms and fungi. We've covered this a number of times, but these topics, the, the uses for these types of things, for health, for all kinds of other things, it's almost like sky's the limit. And I also kind of feel like we've reached a point where we're learning more than we used to, to know. And before we jump in, there's, and I can't remember the name, on Netflix, there is a uh, movie, it's like a, a, a documentary on fungus, and I can't remember the name. I'm sure someone will as we get into this. My mother, who has Alzheimer's, at the time it was much worse. She was not present. Whenever we put on that show, she tuned in and she watched it to the end and then wanted us to start it over. No other show could she comprehend. It it was bizarre to say the least, but it was completely about mushrooms. It was almost like the spirit of the idea somehow reached her and she was tuned in. I don't know how to explain it, but anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very fine good morning. Welcome, James. And I'm guessing you might know the name of the movie I just referenced. Hey, welcome, Crow. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, Fantastic Fungi on Netflix. And it's a super interesting documentary that's predominantly produced by uh, Paul Stamets and Louis Schwartzberg, I believe. And it's a really interesting take on the nature of fungi and our relationship to fungi. And it's important for us to get a better understanding of the role of these organisms because most of the time they go unseen, but they have very uh, powerful roles in our ecosystems both inside our bodies and outside whenever we're checking out our own gardens or we're taking a walk through the woods. You know, I I would say this of that movie, for a person who's never thought about mushrooms, when you watch that, your mind will be blown and you'll ask simple questions like, why the heck haven't we paid more attention to mushrooms for all these decades? But what's even more is it kind of fits the modern place in society where we find ourselves, where one of the main guys taking you through the story, he's not a scientist per se. He's just an average guy who took an interest in mushrooms and became, I won't say professional. I guess if you make a movie, you're professional at that point. But he was just a guy who applied himself with an interest. And that fits so well where we find ourselves. But James, where would you like to to jump in here? Are we going to follow the bullets verbatim or what do you want to do? No, I didn't want to follow the notes verbatim. It was mainly to serve as an outline for discussion. Uh, I just kind of wanted to give an introduction for people that are unfamiliar with what the kingdom of fungi are. They're molds and yeasts. And the study of fungi is uh, called mycology. And it really studies the relationship of these organisms, as well as uh, the the fungal organisms themselves. But I, I really like to, to stress the relationship because it's not so much that we're trying to take an individual organism out and just study that and just study what it can do for us. But we also need to see that it has its own role in the relationship with other plants and animals that are in the ecosystem with it. And so my, my wife and I, we started our business, Family Fungi, because we were interested in the medicinal properties and the health benefits of mushrooms, but also because of the microremediation potentials. And so microremediation is the use of fungi to uh, clean up an environment. And so the medicinal aspects of mushrooms appeal to us because we're basically cleaning up our internal environments 
uh, and we're mediating that through mushrooms. And so the mushrooms become a catalyst for cleaning up our internal environments, whether it's repairing our nervous system or going into our microbiome and balancing our gut microflora. Uh, these things are potent medicines that have been known for centuries, but traditionally it was just passed down through oral tradition. And so you would only know about things regionally. So where you were located, your medicine person there, your medicine man, or someone in your area that was familiar with herbs, because these were for a long time seen as herbs. They weren't really thought of as plant. They weren't thought of as fungi. They were thought of as plants. And so you were brought around your ecosystem and taught what you were already interacting with, even if you hadn't really paid much attention to it. And so it's good to get familiar with our local environments and see what has the local stressors that we're also relating with so that we can interface with those for a medicinal purpose and even for a spiritual purpose. Um, th this is one of the interesting things with like spagyrics is that you're, you're using an essence to, uh, to stimulate your senses of this extrasensory realm or the metaphysical realm, the unseen side of our physical, spiritual, mental selves. One of the things that blew me away as I first started to pay attention to mushrooms is it's really not quite a plant and it's really not quite an animal. It's like its own thing in between or maybe combining those two ideas, uh, even to the point where you'll see people that don't want to eat a hamburger. They'll eat a mushroom and they'll call it meat or the meat of the mushroom. They'll say things like these. And it's very, very interesting when you zero in. But let's start with some bang for our buck. Before we began to record, uh, we started talking about cordyceps. And I think the first time I ever heard the story of the cordyceps that we're going to talk about, my mind was blown. I have an interest in ayahuasca. I have an interest in iboga, in magic mushrooms. To me, this is the natural spirit of nature made by the creation, undeniable, and it does what it does undirected, seemingly, by any given hand. But before I hand it over to you, we're going to cover Chaga Rishi. We may get into turkey tail, shiitake, lion's mane, miyataki, but, oh, and oyster mushrooms, of course, and there's a story there. But let's jump into cordyceps, and I know you know uh, what I'm talking about. It is mind-boggling because there are certain kinds of cordyceps that take over the control systems of certain bugs, insects. So pick it up. Yeah, so in the United States, we have this uh, species called Cordyceps militaris, and it grows on different uh, larvae and uh, beetles. It's particularly found through the Appalachian Range, and it's a very interesting species or, well, they're a part of entomopathogenic fungi, so they are insect-infecting fungi, and you can find these in, uh, in different ecosystems throughout the world. But the one that we're particularly focused on is cordyceps because of their medicinal benefits with respect to uh, anti-cancer, antibacterial. It can help promote fertility. The recent interest in this particular species, cordyceps militaris, stemmed from this mushroom Ophiocordyceps sinensis that is found in the Himalayas. And this mushroom is foraged and harvested for every year 
and is sold as an aphrodisiac. It's also sold to climbers because it helps with oxygenating the body. And so people would actually steep a tea made from this mushroom and then they would climb, they, they would make the ascent across the Himalayas, the trans-Himalayan uh, trade route. And this would assist people with altitude sickness. And so this is where the interest stemmed because this particular Ophiocordyceps sinensis has to be harvested from the wild. It cannot be grown in vitro. So um, I take tissue cultures pretty often. I took some after, after the storm came through here, after Hurricane Ida came through. Um, there was a lot of deadfall. I, I found a bunch of mushrooms from that, and I would take a tissue culture and uh, take a sample of that in my lab. But I can't do that with Ophiocordyceps sinensis because they require... Uh, specific conditions and this host organism, this larvae that grows only in high altitudes in the uh, Himalayas. And so they produce these nucleoside analogs. And so this is uh, something that it's called cortisepin. And to your body, it's much like your uh, adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. It it becomes uh, a structure for uh, molecular development. So your body can take it and start to use it in particular ways that is necessary for your body to either uptake and increase oxygenation, increase blood flow and circulation. And if you're thinking increase circulation and blood flow and oxygenation, that also means increased mental acuity. So all of these things kind of fit in together. But the cordyceps militaris was discovered and it was shown that you could grow these in vitro. So you can grow these in like a greenhouse setting but you would be able to culture them and then grow them in mass because these Ophiocordyceps sinensis, these things are being harvested and they fetch like ten to $20,000 per kilo. And in this particular region of Nepal, it's borderline gang territory for some people that live there. They have their strict turf and no one's allowed to come there, even in the off-season, because they don't want speculation or anything like that. And a lot of it gets sold north to China. But it's a very interesting species for its medicinal qualities. A liquid culture, or this is um, mycelium grown out in a nutritive broth, the, the liquid culture of this mushroom has been studied for its uh, potential for combating small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, So this is using an organism to deal with a condition that's caused by whether it's an improper diet or uh, an imbalance in your gut microbiome. This is just basically like mushroom kombucha. So you can drink this mushroom kombucha for all intents and purposes and start to heal yourself from uh, a bacterial infection. So believe it or not, I'm actually familiar because I've studied Tibet and the spiritual traditions there for years and years and years. And I think what you're referring to is you'll see these Tibetan folks out on these rolling high altitude pastures in grass that's not very long. And they're getting these, it's like a little caterpillar, I think. That's right. And the thing that we're talking about, why it becomes so problematic is because it's everybody wants what they're harvesting and there's only so much of it. It can't be faked in a lab because they need that little caterpillar. They're at high altitude in Tibet and they're collecting these bags. And so then all these ethical issues come in because if someone has a bag of these things, that's a a buttload of money for someone in that part of the world. But from what I understood, I mean, when when I was looking at this idea years and years ago, I mean, the litany of things that it gets used for in Chinese medicine was mind boggling. 
Right. And there's not a lot of information that is in the West right now, but is starting to emerge in the West about cordyceps, about reishi, about all of these different mushrooms that are starting to become commonplace for, uh, at least in my realm, like uh, lion's mane is one that's making a lot of headway in people's consciousness now. They're, They're becoming very aware of lion's mane. Here in Louisiana, we only, we can have lion's mane grow in the wild, but it grows pretty much January through March. And that's it. It likes only the coldest months here. In northern climates like where you're at, you might be able to find it in an extended season. But do. it's it's considered a, a choice edible mushroom. It's got a delicious texture that's like if uh, if chicken and crab had a baby. It's uh, it's meaty like oh. chicken, but tender like crab. But it's great for promoting nervous system health. It has nerve regrowth factors. It actually stimulates these factors within your body. So uh, they're called heresiones that are in the that are actually in the mushroom and those particular compounds stimulate the growth of new nerve cells um, and it, it also has contains a large amount of beta glucans which are good for feeding your probiotic organisms in uh, in your gut and so a lot of this information has been known for 50 60 70 years in the east and even before that there was already recorded literature like you're saying in in Tibet, there are uh, there are thangkas. There are these paintings that show these people on the high plains harvesting the caterpillar fungus or uh, yarsagumba, and so they're they're going and finding this this uh, caterpillar fungus, and and that's all that they could really relate to it as. And they would go and and find it, and then they would steep a tea from it, and then they would find these physical benefits. And the physical benefits are what a lot of people in the West tend to look for with supplementation in general, but the spiritual aspect of it, I, I think before, whenever we were talking, before we started recording was the spiritual aspect seems to get lost in materialist reductionism. And because we can't quantify what's going on spiritually, it's it's an experience. Like with, uh, with ayahuasca, with ibogaine, with magic mushrooms, the only way to accurately convey what is going on in that experience is to have gone on the experience. It's subjective in nature. So a lot of times if someone goes on a, on a mushroom trip, they'll tell you what happened for them. And that doesn't mean that that's going to be the same experience someone else would have if they take mushrooms because it's going to be entirely subjective. The mushroom is a good teacher, but it's going to teach your spirit what is necessary at your particular time of development when you're interacting with that as as a sacrament, as a medicine. I feel that through the rave scene and festival scenes, it has been maligned as being a drug. And it totally can be what a couple of my friends and I just call, oh, lights and sounds and colors. Yeah, it can be just fun. But if you eat a sufficient amount of mushrooms and sit with yourself, well, you might have to go through some traumatic aspects of your life that can be extremely revelatory and healing. But if someone's not prepared for it, then it can give someone the quote unquote bad trip. And it may not be a bad trip. It just may be a message that is a little harsh for someone's ears to hear at that time. But regardless, they need to hear it. This sounds like the social engineering thing again, where they're taking the really good aspects of it and just turning it into a great big party. 
dope. Yeah, and I think that that serves as a way to dissuade people from having that experience. I don't recommend that people go looking to have this experience. I think that you can find it in the birth of your child. I think that you can find it through a really, really good conscious breath. But for some people, they do have to have that experience. They do have to have that falling away of ego sense, of self, of self-involvement, where our little self, our, our small mind that's circumscribed by all of our beliefs is transcended and we get out of our own uh, cyclical pattern and we can see the, uh, the grand tapestry unroll itself in front of us. And I think that that is a wonderful experience, but I do caution people to have at least a spiritual grounding where they're not trying to solve something. Um, a lot of times people are trying to solve something and there's more importance in listening than there is in an action or a doing. There's a lot of, of this doing mind in the West, where as opposed to the East, there is a little bit more of this allowing because there, there seems to be, especially in, in Taoism, uh, a recognition that we, we have agency, but we're also in a limited state ourselves. So our agency extends out far and it is also limited because we are we're in this physical reality. We're in this place of, of learning. And so we're going to have to have some limits to rub up against to be able to reveal. The, the rubbing, the boundary condition is not necessarily the end-all be-all, but it can be a threshold. It, it can be a gateway. And sometimes we have our own gatekeepers at those gateways that are like, look, you're not ready to see this. Go back and play with light, sounds, and colors. And sometimes we have gatekeepers that are like, when you pass through this gate, there is no you left. So that was a lot. And I guess I'll say the words that make a lot of people upset, but I'll say them again. In the 60s, social engineering introduced dope into our culture, getting high, which I think dope is the right word for that. And what happened is we went from a 50s culture into the 60s culture, and all these various ways of getting high were introduced. It was tied to the popular culture. It was tied to the music. Uh, biggest band in the world, the Beatles, were psychedelic for some period of time. Who can forget Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD. But as we move forward through the 70s and 80s, what they had done in the 60s had ensured that us living lives in the West we became very good at getting high and this is the you know the double reverse on these types of things we're thinking about where there's cultures all over the world using them to spiritually develop uh i would estimate i'm with james it's very difficult to do that if all you know how to do is get high and that's why i always say get yourself a guide get yourself a teacher and go through the steps of switching from i'm taking some dope and i'm getting high to I'm doing something else altogether on a spiritual journey. But I wanted to touch on the Tonka. I spent years looking at Tonkas. And very few people are familiar with how a Tonka works. The word is like thank with a G-K-A on the end. So Tonka, thangka, if you look it up, Tonka. There is very little artistic free expression in these things. Even the dimensions of the Buddha or whatever they're creating in a Tonka are laid down as we would lay down like the Ten Commandments in the Bible. In other words, these are not things you're supposed to fudge this way or that. It is what it is. But to hear that they have 
Tonkas where they're harvesting this fungi. That's incredible because that lifts it up to the highest spiritual concerns within that culture. Yeah. And so I spent several months in Nepal and I I saw these in places uh, away from Kathmandu. And it's very interesting because like you're saying, it's a very specific practice of painting. It's to draw the mind and the mind's eye in a particular direction. Um, there's a focal point. And if you actually, um, if, you st- if you stop looking for subjects in it and you allow the painting to be complete in your vision without you looking for specific aspects, oh, that's a tree there. Oh, look, someone's smiling, blah, blah, blah. There, it, it will actually guide you into a particular uh, mental state, uh, into a vibrational state within your mind to uh, to allow for something to come through, some knowledge, some intuition, some realization. Uh, these, it's one of the interesting things with mandalas is a, is a focal point, and it's not so much to try to stare through the focal point, but it's to relax and to to fall into a deeper state of relaxation while uh, still being present. Not so relaxed that you fall asleep in your seat, but so relaxed that you can allow these multiple waves of intuition and realization that are already at hand to uh, to come in through a silenced mind. It's a good example using the mandalas and the tonkas because when I first experienced them, I thought, wow, that is so beautiful. And that's where I started. And I had a nephew who could draw like nobody's business. When he was about eight years old, he left me in the dust. I started with a magna doodle. He caught on and he became an artist like you can't imagine. And he took an interest in Tonkas. So there was a place called Tibet House in San Diego, and he'd been drawing his own Tonkas. And we went down there and showed them to the guy. And I could tell instantly something was bothering him. And that's where we learned that this is like taking someone's Bible and rewriting the verses. And so he hooked us up with a book and it shows the perfect proportions that you're supposed to follow to draw any aspect in these things. But here's here's the comparison. With my Western mind, I was drawn in by the beauty of it. When I actually began to learn what was encapsulated in that artwork, that left. That entire idea that I'm looking for beauty, I mean, it's still beautiful, but the meaning is, it's incredible. And so a culture in my mind that grows up with these ideas is mentally just in a very different place than we are in the land of 7-Eleven. Yeah, that's for certain. And it's a way of preserving the record without having to write it out in so many words. Like I said, if if you're allowing yourself to uh, to view one of these tankas or a mandala, then you are in a certain receptive state. You're in a mental uh, you're, you're in a mental vibrational awareness state where you can receive and intuit a lot of knowledge that, again, like I said, is already accessible and already at hand. But most of the time, we're distracting ourselves through a lot of times physical desires. It's one of the reasons in these spiritual traditions, uh, fasting is uh, is a big part of it, is so that you can uh, start to shed these different layers that are distracting from what's being pointed at or revealed through a particular practice. And so I kind of wanted to circle back to micro-remediation because I think that it's a very important topic and it's pressing in our times because I'm not someone that's worried about 
the uh, the hoax of climate change. I'm I'm someone that's worried more about pollution because I don't want to drink polluted water. And these mushrooms have a fantastic ability at filtering out pollutants, silt, different minerals that are hardening the water in in a particular area. Uh, one thing that I, I put in our notes was the flooding in uh, British Columbia. There was a lot of runoff from manure pits and from animal agriculture and wastewater treatment plants that could have been mitigated. A lot of that could have been mitigated through the proper use of mushrooms to filter out uh, the different bacteria and pollutants that can come from you know, conventional agriculture. And I'm not trying to say, oh, we should just use mushrooms to uh, continue using conventional agriculture. That's not it. But to reveal that that's something that we can use in our ecosystems to undo a lot of the damage that that we're doing through our behaviors. Because even though we're not the person causing the oil spill necessarily, our demand for the oil is causing the oil spill in in a sense that that we're we're involved because of our desire to get the uh, the product on the end of that. And these mushrooms have a fantastic ability to be used for uh, cleaning up oil. There was a study done by Paul Stamets with a few people from the University of Washington, and they took soil from a municipal site that they would do the repairs for the Department of Transportation at. And so there was a lot of oil and kerosene and all sorts of hydrocarbons that had contaminated the soil from changing the brake fluid to doing oil changes. And so they took some of the soil and they treated some with bacteria. They treated some with, uh, they actually left one as a control so it received no treatment. And they treated some with 30% by weight oyster mushroom spawn. And so they, they treated these piles and they let them run for about four weeks and they came back and took a look at them. And within four weeks, oyster mushrooms were growing out of the contaminated uh, soil. The bacterial soil was still just sludgy and full of oil and, uh, and hydrocarbons. And the control was just the same. It, nothing had changed. And then in about eight weeks, they came back and they did uh, a, a, a final test on it. And the initial test showed 20,000 parts per million of contaminants in the soil. And after eight weeks, it had reduced to 200 parts per million. So it was a 100-fold decrease and the amount of contaminants in just eight weeks. And so this, this kind of goes to show just how quickly the fungi can be used to remediate environments and to eat up hydrocarbons, which for a long time have just been viewed as like, once it's there, it's there and it's kind of effed for a little bit. But really we can uh, catalyze that process by using uh, mushrooms. And I, and I pointed out in our notes that having a local mushroom farm is having a soil uh, a soil creation catalyst in your community because they're taking these enormous trees and then they're reducing them back into soil and you get an edible product along the way, a medicinal product, dependent on how that particular mushroom grower or cultivator is using that substrate. But you can use these to put into your garden to improve the soil fertility or you can use it to catch runoff from uh, from your own cows and to prevent it from going into a shared watershed. So these are just some of the fantastic benefits that can be used 
at human scale? Okay, these are big ideas. And if I'm not mistaken, the oyster mushrooms that were used, uh, I, mean, I think decades ago, the first time they did it uh, to clean up an oil spill, the mushrooms themselves were edible after they cleaned up the oil. But this brings up this whole idea. We were just talking about it. Right now on the East Coast, what day is it? It's January 27. About a week ago, they started saying, we're going to have a blizzard. It's measured in feet. And immediately I could hear the language. Um, and they, I knew they were spouting fear porn. Everyone around me is afraid right now. Um, we have nurses that are supposed to come visit my mom. They're worried that this blizzard's going to stop them. And I looked at a phone app and I realized the phone app was saying there's going to be some inches here. And the local news is going full fear porn. To relate this back to the mushrooms, consider an oil spill now. Now, Jason and I did work that talked about they drilled oil wells and sucked them dry and they came back 10 years later. It was, we came to the conclusion, we're not even really quite sure what oil is, but what I do know is when they've just sucked it out and they've done nothing to it, it's called crude. And yet nature made that and look at the fear porn that is sprouted on an oil spill somewhere. Now, sure, animals going to die if they dump many thousands and thousands of gallons, clearly, but What's not being said is, first of all, the oil came from nature. Secondarily, nature has a fix for that, (laughs) at least one that we know of, right? It's called mushrooms. And what I find interesting is these types of living things within nature, they have a very, I don't know what to call it, strong spirit. Like when we covered iboga, people with terrible addictions took the iboga once, and the way they described it was their brain was reset to a pre-addiction state. In a way, isn't that what we're saying about the mushrooms? So oil got all over the place. The powers that be want us to think, oh, that place is jacked for the next thousand years or whatever they want us to think. The truth is nature already has a solution. I'm just saying. Right, right. And like you said, uh, it's, it's to point people away, whether it's to point people away from that area where it's happening, whether the oil spill or the contamination or whatever the heck they're going to call it, where that's happening. My personal belief is that it may be to distract people away from that area and it may be a resource rich area. And they're like, oh, no, look, it's all messed up. Don't even worry about it. You know, move to the cities. The cities is where um, all of this stuff is going anyways. Haven't you heard of a smart city? And it's like, no, that's we're, we're trying to find this, this return to nature. We're feeling this spiritual call. And I feel like that's why a lot of developments are coming out in the fungal world is to remind people these fungi are the keepers of balance. They're the alchemists of the biological world. They can produce these radical enzymes that help to, again, break down oil or to break down plastics even. And for the longest, I, especially for myself, I'm 29. Growing up, I was always told that plastic's here, and once it's here, it's here. But that's not necessarily true. And this is what starts to get revealed for a lot of people that really dive into the truth movement in any sort of way, is that they start to peel away these layers of uh, misleading information. It's, it's funny that the truth around the current narrative is called misinformation, Yet the misinformation is that we were already misinformed. Like we're missing information at this point. And a lot of information is just being disregarded. Well, think about the truth of things. In the same way the news right now is fear porning everyone out of their minds that we're going to get some snow. 
Well, first of all, when I was a kid, didn't matter how much snow you got. If you could drive, you were going to school. When I was young, that's how it worked. Now it's this whole other thing. But the point here is when I was growing bamboo, we wanted to take, I think it was a four acre plot and put a certain kind of bamboo down to see if it would just turn over raw sewage. We knew it would turn over urine and we were pretty sure it would do sewage. The problem was, is they had used Roundup all over the place where we might have been able to plant. At the time, what we were told was this will never be certified organic until it sits here for, I think it was 35 or 40 years. <laughs> see, see what happens here? Yeah. How come nobody said, you know, if you just put a bunch of mushrooms in here for a while, um, we can clean this place up in a lot less time or something like this. And, and some of that could be a product of in-group thinking where that person that's telling you that has no idea themselves. Everyone is so compartmentalized and specialized that a lot of this information that should be crossover, crossing over into uh, different disciplines doesn't even reach someone's ear. It may You may have a study that's done, a paper that gets written and published, but then that once it's published, it's like that was kind of the goal was just the publishing because the publishing can give me an accolade that can help me get my foot in the door for uh, funding somewhere else down the line. And sometimes stuff gets shelved. I mean, for personally, I was studying uh, micromolecular biology and the career outlook for me was go work for the CDC, go work for academia, stay in academia and continue doing studies or go work for industry, which in my area means to go work for the petrochemical industry. And so I didn't really like that that's all that college was going to fast track me for was that. And I was homeschooled until uh, until high school. And so I kind of had a little bit of my head out of the screen that's distracting people and telling people what to think and believe and do. And I always had this questioning sense where I was like, but is that true? Uh, it, the always, but is that true? kept me going further down the rabbit hole and eventually led me to get out of college to teach myself mycology because out-of-state tuition was going to be astronomical and unaffordable. $20,000 a semester was not going to be anywhere close to uh, to my price range. And so I started teaching myself and reading. This, the studies are available for people to read. Some of them are performed poorly. And if you know how to read studies, you can see that they're performed poorly. But to circle back, most people that are studying in university are studying to figure out how to write a grant to get funding for a particular project. And it's it, it's almost self-defeating because there are promising things that we can do that will get that will get shelved because it interferes with a, a large industry. Or there is already a patent for it, and you may stumble across something that's already been patented and it'll shut all of your research down because it's like, oh, we already solved that problem. Wash your hands of it and on to the next thing. And it's like, well, but I just discovered this interesting thing that we can apply and why aren't we doing this? And it's like, because somebody already patented it and no one's doing anything with it. Owen Benjamin was recently referencing one of your streams where uh, I can't remember who it was, had mentioned about doing a few slight modifications to your vehicle would increase the gas mileage tenfold, tw uh, 20-fold. And why isn't that part of a standard vehicle? Because it interferes with control mechanisms to continue harvesting our physical labor energy to our spiritual mental energy. 
That was George Wiseman, by the way. He's done two episodes on Brown's gas, but we got into exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, when, when you hear these things, you know, we could have been off oil, Lord knows how long ago, but I had forgot to bring a thing up and I really want to, because I'm wondering what you know about it. Can we circle back to cordyceps for just a second? Certainly. Okay. So the first time I ever saw a mushroom hijack the nervous system of a living creature, it blew my mind. So there's an ant and he's moving really funny and he's been infected by cordyceps. The other ants in the colony knew that he'd been infected and three or four of them grabbed him and walked way away from where all the ants were. And they, they dropped him out of a tree because they knew he was infected with the cordyceps. Other ants had been infected with the cordyceps and their system had been hijacked so that they would go back near the nest or something like that. They die and the sprout comes out of the head of the ant, which is the mushroom. And it, it's to see it, it's mind blowing how. If you don't know this place was created in some way and you see that, you, I mean, how could you not ask the question, how did all this happen? But my point is, do you imagine some shadowy place like the CIA saw that for the first time and said, hey, man, I bet we could do that with people. <laughs> do, you suppose, do you suppose they've tried to take cordyceps? And by the way, could cordyceps infect a person or are we too sophisticated for that hijack? I think that we have already been hijacked and that we're already passing that along. So it goes through culture. So it doesn't have to be physically mediated by uh, a host organism. So instead of it being a mushroom that goes from ant to ant, it could be ideas that go from person to person. Which we know. So the social program we've done so much, but my main point, not to interrupt too badly here, is could we take the cordyceps that infected the ant and ingest it or be exposed to it perfectly safely? Oh, yes. Yeah. So for higher order living beings, it doesn't pose a risk to our nervous system being exposed to these things because, in fact, we already are. Just going for a walk in the woods, you're exposed to the spores of an untold number of fungi, including entomopathogenic fungi. But we are still being affected by microorganisms. So our gastrointestinal system, for all intents and purposes, is our culture vessel. And so we are part of this grand system of taking the light of the creator and putting it into ourselves to decode our DNA, to unfold our life story. So light condenses into matter through photosynthesis and a plant is either eaten by us or is eaten by an animal that we eat. And that light continues through that animal or through that plant into us. And we are taking that light that is information or data from the creator and we are informing ourselves and unfolding our life story that is in our DNA. So this kind of harkens to the story of creation, the Sumerian story of creation, where the Anunnaki tampered with our DNA. It is, is that true? And if so, did they turn something off? What is junk DNA? And junk DNA, obviously, it's not junk. But what's, what's in there? What script is in there that we aren't reading yet that, isn't, that we're not decoding for ourselves? So whenever we're interfacing with foods, we are choosing to inform ourselves and thus our culture vessel. And so we are influencing our own culture 
through the foods that we're eating. So if one particular thing, uh, candida yeasts, a lot of people are trying to fight candida yeast overgrowth. They're getting a thrush on their tongue. Maybe they have recurrent yeast infections. Almost all of it is due to diet. You are what you eat. You become what you are consuming. And so it's very important to be diligent about how we are informing our culture internally because we will manifest that back out through illness or through ill thinking. And this is why I I went back to the scale of ideas and idea pathogens is because the transferability of that is much easier than getting someone to get candida yeast. Even though that's pretty easy just because of highly refined carbohydrates, it's pretty easy to get somebody to have this natural yeast overgrow inside of their body. But it's much more pernicious to get an idea inside someone's mind that unwinds a thread of their spirit to cause them to pick at themselves and pull themselves apart. It can variously be called the maleficent spirit, malevolent spirit, Satan, whatever, the the adversary. And if we're asleep at the wheel, this can actually overcome our conscious ability to to interface. We're just asleep at the wheel. I'm going to go grab something that's just going to fulfill my base desires, but nothing that's giving you that the the spiritual essence like we were speaking about with spagyrics or with with something that appeals to to the higher nature of us. And it shows up in the outward culture, in the way that music videos are designed, in the way that all sorts of media is designed to stimulate base desires and does not appeal to our higher sense of self and, um, and our ability to connect to the creator, to our creator. Because I, I feel that we will experience a great amount of relief whenever we have that interface and we, and we feel that something did create us. I feel that, if, that, that most people that are tied up into the material world are looking for that reassurance that, hey, yeah, something, something made you and is looking out for you. And that's, why, that's how you even got here in the first place. And that revelation however that shows up for someone, alleviates a lot of mental illness, but it doesn't necessarily correct behavior. The behavior and the entrainment, I think, starts at home. It starts in in your gut. It starts in your mind. And our gut influences our, our mental capacity so much that gut intuition is, is a big thing. You get a gut feeling. But if you're so numb because you've turned off a lot of the switches inside of yourself, you're, you may be getting a lot of intuition that you're not able to synthesize because you've already shut down a lot of your processing ability for it. All right. Well, we've got just a few minutes left in the first hour here. Um, what's important to get out to the hour that goes out to everybody, James? Um, do you want to start to get into the different types? And by the way, you want to know something? You know, we were talking about how simple it is to, to drastically increase your MPG. I feel the same way about mushrooms. And the first time I ever thought about it, I was watching some movie mushrooms were key and they accidentally cured cancer. And I began to realize, as I looked at this, there's, there's people in this world. I know there are that could probably cure a litany of cancers using um, these things. It's like the same thing. It's not, 
It's just about what we know or what we don't know. And when you were talking about funding, funding controls what we know these days, right? If a university is going to do a thing, it's because it's been funded to do a thing. So the person who's funding them to do a thing is pretty much controlling what it is they're going to do. And so again, we see a control system put in, but I mean, are you with me? I I wouldn't be surprised to know that there's a mushroom for every known cancer or something. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And so we offer different, uh, we offer one particular tincture right now um, through our website and it's made with reishi, chaga, turkey tail, lion's mane, and shiitake. And these mushrooms all have different anti-cancer potentials from uh, pro- proven to fight sarcomas, which are, uh, which are muscle cancers, which are notoriously difficult to treat, to breast cancer, to colon cancer. All, all of these mushrooms are helping to suppress tumors. Whenever they're being taken as teas or extracts, they're helping to suppress tumors. They're also helping to increase your body's ability to repair and recover from damage. And the importance of them can't be understated because there are already institutions that are using extracts from mushrooms, namely Johns Hopkins University. They use a product called Crestin in their uh, cancer treatment therapies. And Crestin is uh, an extracted polysaccharide or a, a big complex sugar from turkey tail mushrooms. And turkey tail mushrooms are ubiquitous. I mean, they're found everywhere. You could find them uh, on a on a log, uh, almost in desert conditions. They have a wide extant range where they're occurring, and they also make a ton of different enzymes that we can use for neutralizing free radicals in our body, which causes a lot of cancer. These free radicals are looking for something to bond with to come to a more balanced or neutral state where they're not reactive. Uh, reactive oxygen species are looking to, they're looking for a dance partner. They're looking for someone to slow them down a little bit, dance with them, and not have them causing damage to other cells because the reason they're causing damage is they're looking for something to bring them to a lower energy state where they're, where they're more balanced. And so chaga and reishi, these are, these are great mushrooms that have antioxidants. Uh, chaga especially has uh, SOD, superoxide dismutase, that is fantastic for neutralizing a lot of these free radical species. And the chaka mushroom is pretty much ubiquitous through northern climates. I mean, yeah, I, I believe you're in, uh, in New Hampshire and- Rhode Island. And yes, we have them. Yeah. And you have them up there. They're uh, pretty much anywhere birch trees are endemic. You're, you can find chaga. The problem is there is a, a bit of a, a of an issue with over harvesting, just in the sense that if people are overusing a natural resource, it's going to take a longer time to come back. I don't think that we can completely deplete the world's resources. I think the Creator made everything in such an intelligent way that I don't think that we can f things up so much that it's irreversible. I think that we can make it very painful for ourselves to be here. But I don't think that the limited beings of the creator can destroy the creator's creation. I agree with that. It's almost like we, you would do your own self in for a little while. But I agree with you. It's, the, it's the, whole, the whole basis for the nuclear argument that got me going. What started me on that was how much of a creation would this be if some clever monkey down here could get a red button and end it all with the push of a button? And I realized that's not common sense. 
to accept that. That's the opposite. And that's how I started looking. But I want to get back to a thing you said. It's almost like our medical, like if you had to look at our modern medical system, which uses the old astronomical retrograde symbol for the drugs it uses, RX, used to mean, well, does mean retrograde in astrology. What would be the main tenet that you would not only ignore, but hide from everyone else? Wouldn't that main tenet be you are what you eat? And by the way, that didn't become a big deal to me until I comprehended the Gerson method, where it was basically these people are really sick. They stop eating everything except this and cleaning out their body. Lo and behold, they many of them come right back to life, much healthier than the other were. I mean, are you with me? It's like the main tenant that the Rockefeller allopathic medicine system has to not only ignore, but instill in to ignore in us the idea that you are what you eat. Right, right. There's a funny book that uh I came across this this interesting gentleman from uh, the country of Georgia, and he was he was a filmmaker, and he he was telling me about a book by I I don't know that it was Dale Carnegie, but it was it was someone of that ilk, and it was like how I outsmarted the devil or something like that, and I I started I just I skim read a couple chapters, and one of the things was it's like the narrator is having a conversation with the devil, and the narrator says that the. Uh, the devil spoke to him and told him that he was very upset with the Rockefellers for making such advancements in medicine. And I had to stop reading it. I was like, this is full of crap. And there's no there's no telling how many people without discernment would read that and be like, oh, yeah, you know, wow, even even the devil doesn't like uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. Like, no, uh, if you actually are in touch with what the Rockefeller Foundation has provided funding for and withheld funding from and subverted and suppressed patents for, then you would have a completely different take. But if you were just, oh yeah, I'm going to read this book for entertainment, then you could easily be be misled. And there are a lot of different uh, mechanisms that are in place to kind of keep people in line. That if you think that you're starting to look outside of the matrix, you're in another matrix, basically. Like there's an uh, one, one of the things that Owen Benjamin will talk about is you go from one pasture to another pasture. And it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, still still green grass over here, but you can't see the other fence. You didn't you, it, we, we weren't as aware that we were being fenced in on the outside of our current fence. And I, I see that in the truth community. I see that in myself. I have to admit that I, I see that in myself, that I'm still finding my own boundaries. How do you know that you're in prison until you touch the walls? I'm still finding my own walls. And so I, I'm in no way immune from the influence of, of these systems that have been put in place prior to my existence. But finding them and understanding the fallacies in them, I think is, is a very uh, honorable thing to do for yourself so you can put that into your culture. So you can put that into your oral tradition so that your family or someone that you can guide doesn't get misled. All right, uh, James, I'm going to wrap up hour one of 386. For everyone listening, you can find James at familyfungi.net. Fungi is F-U-N-G-I, familyfungi.net. Um, Jason, anything you want to get into the end of the first hour? I'd like to take a moment to let everyone know that I've gotten the chance to get to know James and his wife a little bit and try some of their products, and it's really good stuff, and they're really great people. Mushrooms in the last maybe 10, 15 years have come a long way in terms of what's available. Now, I'm kind of out in the boonies a little bit in Rhode Island, 
And yet there are, that I know of, I think three uh, mushroom growers near me and some mushrooms that I've never even heard of or seen are now showing up in the stores. Uh, Mushrooms are coming a long way. And think about this as we close our one of 386. All this time that we've been kind of locked up in this country, there never were really bars, mostly, and fences. There were, but mostly not. The limitations were what we were led to believe. It was our own minds that were limiting us. And now that we've reached a place where the minds are beginning to lift up again, guess what? They need those bars. Problem is, is we don't do iron bars anymore. So the bars they're building now are going to be electronic. And that is going to be their full frontal to try to fence people in, as James was talking about. But even then, it all starts in what you accept and what you believe or what you don't. The common sense that keeps you safe from living a world of complete fantasy, which for my part, I feel like at least into my 20s, 90% of my life and everything I thought of and accepted was fantasy. That's a long time. That's like a third of my life. I spent complete sleepwalk. And even after that, it took me so long to get far enough down the road that I would learn simple lessons. Like if that source always lies to me, I don't think I should listen to anything that source says to me anymore. I mean, it took me another 10 years just to to get to there. Point is, mushrooms are a big deal right now, and they're getting to be a bigger deal because there are so many growers. But if you take the time to watch the movie and go see people like James at familyfungi.net, the medicinal values, just everything is off the charts. As a matter of fact, I got to the point where I walked into the woods around here, and I used to think this place is trees. And I walked in once and I thought, I wonder if the mushrooms outweigh the trees in this place. All the mushrooms I can't see that are doing all the recycling and everything. Anyhow, that brings hour one of 386 to a close. Hour two will be posted at crow777radio.com. C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in. I hope to see you all over there. We'll have a fascinating second hour. There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.